So my wife, Rebecca, and I did what you're never supposed to do, uh, and we spent over an hour with a solicitor in our neighborhood selling security equipment. And, you know, it's just one of those things that I look back on and I, and I wonder why. But in, in the midst of, of talking with this very nice gentleman about this security system that he was, that he was offering and the, and the special deal, right, that we could get if only we signed up right now, in the midst of that, I was listening and, you know, I thought, this, is, this does sound like a pretty good deal and I would love an upgrade or whatever it was that I was justifying myself. And so we were in the process of actually, like, putting a contract together and I pulled up my phone and I actually looked at the invoice. So not just what was being said, but what was written down. And I realized that all of the costs were hidden in this huge monthly fee with a commitment for like five years. And it became immediately apparent to me that after wasting an hour of my life and, and this person's life, that I could not afford this. There's no way. It was super awkward. I had to say that uh, to the salesman and I thought, now he hates me and he tried to sweeten the deal and he like called his manager and we had to talk to the manager. Even though we knew this wasn't going to happen, my wife and I were too nice to just kind of stop and move on. So we, we, we prolonged the pain. But eventually it was just absolutely crystal clear to everyone there. We were not able to do this. There's just no way. I bring that up because there's a sense in which Jesus is asking us this very question in this parable. He's asking, are you able to follow me? I know you're willing and you probably want to follow me, but are you able to? Can you afford to follow me? Because the cost of following Jesus is high. Now, perhaps uh, many of us come into this parable, this conversation, thinking, well, of course I want to follow Jesus because grace is, is free, right? And that's true. We, there's nothing we can do to earn Jesus' love and forgiveness. That's absolutely true. Grace is free in that sense. But Jesus reminds us here in this parable that to follow him will cost us everything. will cost us everything. We will spend a lifetime following him, learning to surrender more and more of ourselves if we are doing it right. It's what it looks like to follow him truly. So Jesus' parable here is about counting the cost ahead of time, which is a really intuitive part of many of our lives, right? That's why Jesus gives the parable the way that he does. He basically says, you know, before you follow me, uh, imagine a builder starting a project. Would they begin the project without first counting the cost, making sure they have the necessary materials and the necessary funds to actually complete the project? Because how embarrassing and terrible it would be if they would start the project and be unable to finish it. We, we bring that reasoning into all parts of our lives. Actually, as a church right now, it's really tangible. We've started two building projects, if you remember, a permanent home for our Shawnee campus and our downtown campus. And before we began that project, we put a plan together and voted on it. Why? Because it would be dumb not to. This is Jesus' point. You look ahead and make sure you're able to do what will be required of you before you begin. He says, if you want to follow me, have you really considered the cost? Jesus is not interested in buried fees and uh, hidden contracts. He's not, that's not, he, he's very upfront about what it means to follow him. And the context of this parable, if you remember, it's in Luke 14. If you have your Bible with you, turn there now. It starts with, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned to them and said, so he's got all of these, he's, his popularity is growing. He's got all these people following him. And then he gives this parable about counting the cost. And I think what he's concerned about is that the people who are following him have unconsciously buried the costs that they don't want to consider 
as they begin their relationship with him as Lord. And he, he wonders, when the test comes, are you going to fail? Are you ready? And most of us are probably who are watching are following Jesus right now, or at least interested in doing that, but perhaps payment hasn't yet come due in our lives. And Jesus is asking us, have you considered the cost? Have you prepared for the cost to come of what it means to follow me? Because it will cost you something. That's Jesus' intent here with this parable. So what I want to spend our time considering is what costs have we failed to consider when Jesus gives this parable? What what costs have we failed to consider? Uh, The point of the parable is really straightforward. Have you counted the cost? But what have we maybe not consciously brought to mind and thought, yes, that this could cost me this X to follow Jesus? And the first thing that Jesus hints at here as he describes the cost of discipleship uh, is what I'm calling the cost of loyalty. There's a loyalty cost. And you really see this uh, before the parable in Luke. uh, It's Luke uh, 14. Uh, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. These are really shocking words from Jesus at this time. But Jesus says there are all kinds of loyalties in life and many of them to family members that may come into competition with your loyalty to me. Now keep in mind, uh, in the in the Hebrew mindset, uh, this language of hate is not about emotively hating the people in your life. Uh, it is, a, it is a, an exaggeration, a metaphor for commitment. Are you more committed to me than to these other loyalties and even your family members in your life? And Jesus is very concerned about divided loyalties pulling us away from him. That's his point here. He says your, your loyalties cannot be divided. They must be properly ordered. Your loyalty to me must inform every other loyalty in your life, and it must come first, and everything else has to become secondary. So his first example here is loyalty to family. I just read that passage. And many of us maybe haven't uh, had to feel the pinch of the, the, uh, the dissonance between our faith and our loyalty to Jesus and our family. Uh, but many people uh, have experienced this. I'm thinking now in particular of those of you who have become Christian, your parents have not. Those of you who are married and you want to be a follower of Jesus Jesus and your spouse doesn't. Uh, Or even kind of in in a more general way, there are times where we make decisions as individuals and families that impact our families or our friends, our key relationships. And Jesus is asking us to do something that these other people in our lives don't want us to do or don't feel comfortable with. Even as simple as reading your Bible or going to church, they don't want you to do that. Jesus is hinting there may be conflict in your life around family. Now, in other cultures, including this one, this would have been an incredibly scandalous thing for Jesus to say because loyalty to family is so primary. And you even think around the world today. I've talked to many Asian brothers and sisters in the Lord where this is a really hard issue for them because their parents disapprove uh, of their relationship with Jesus. Uh, And obviously, in many cultures, your loyalty to your parents is really, really important. And Jesus knew this. He said, you've got to watch out for your loyalty to family. But perhaps what I feel more acutely uh, today is not necessarily our loyalty to family, but our loyalty to politics. And you guys, let's just be honest. We're entering a season where people are on TV and on the internet asking for our loyalty. And that's only going to increase as, as the months go on here in 2020. And as followers of Jesus... 
it has become easier than ever, I think, to choose politics and cable news and the internet over scripture and Jesus, that our loyalties become divided. And of course, we live in a polarized world, that mean, which means that it's, in one sense, it's harder to stay truly committed to Jesus and his kingdom. But in other ways, it becomes even more important that we stand out in our loyalties as followers of Jesus. We can really show a different way. And uh, this is nothing new, frankly. This is just as true today as it was in the ancient uh, Christian church of the first century. And Tim Keller, who is a retired pastor in New York, he, he recently gave a lecture uh, at a seminary it's really, really good uh, lectures at Princeton. Uh, uh, he got an award as a, from the Leslie Newbegin Center at Princeton. And he talked about how early Christians, their allegiance to Jesus and not the empire, made them look very different from the surrounding culture, uh, the Greco-Roman world. Not only because of their monotheism and their faith in Jesus, that was true, but also in their commitment to kingdom justice and values that were based on Scripture, and not the Greco-Roman culture. And he uh, was getting a lot of this from a scholar named Larry Hurtado who wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods, uh, which is about the early Christian movement and the impact that it had on the Roman Empire. And I'm going to try to do this quickly, but Larry Hurtado talks about five commitments of the early church um, that were radically different from the Greco-Roman world that made them stand out in their allegiance to Jesus. the first was they were known for a radical commitment to the poor and the marginalized. Uh, in fact, it was so radical that Emperor Julian, who wrote against the Galileans, which was his term for the Christians, the emperor himself, this is in the fourth century, he famously said about Christians, you know, the real problem with these Christians is that they become so popular because they care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. That was their reputation. Radical commitment to the good of the materially poor and the marginalized. Uh, They also had a radical commitment to a multi-ethnic religious identity, unlike the ancient world had ever seen. They had a religion that brought people together of all ethnicities in a way that ancient religion simply did not do. The reality in the ancient world was you could generally look at someone and just by looking at how they dress and what language they speak, you could say, this is what they believe. They worship this God, They, they, they read this scripture until Christians came on the scene. Then you would look at someone who was a part of a house church and you'd say, what are the, all of these people doing together? There's no explanation for why they are in a religious community together other than their loyalty to Jesus. So it was incredible multi-ethnic religious identity in the early church. The third was a commitment to positive pro-life, what we would call pro-life, or commitment to uh, infants and their good. Uh, there was rampant infanticide in the Roman world. Uh, Abortions were dangerous uh, and risky and expensive, and so most people didn't do them. You would have your child, and if you didn't want them, you would would put them outside, you'd expose them, and either someone would come get them and make them a slave, or they would uh, eventually die outside alone, which is horrible to think about. Christians were known for finding these children, adopting them, bringing them into their homes, and raising them as their own. So they had a commitment, a positive commitment to pro-life. The fourth uh, was uh, their sexual ethic which was much stricter than their Greco-Roman neighbors. Christians were committed to sexual relationships being by God's design between one man and one woman in a covenant of marriage. This was not the Greco-Roman idea of sexuality. Uh, Marriage was about legal heirs, and especially if you were a man, whoever you slept with, that was totally fine. Um, That was not the Christian way of looking at, at sexuality. And then last, 
uh, was a commitment to non-retaliation, to love their enemies, as Jesus taught. So in other words, if you burned down their homes, if you took away their business, if you put them in jail, if you killed Christians in the first century, they did not do the same back to you. So Tim Keller, he ran through all of these things, and they are still so relevant today. And he made a point here that I want to just share about our loyalty. He said, two of these values look like one of our political parties, okay? Commitment to uh, ethnic diversity uh, and a commitment to help the poor and the marginalized. He said, this looks like the Democratic Party. He said, two others look more like the Republican Party, right? A strict sexual ethic, family values, uh, and a commitment to, uh, to life, uh, to pro-life, all stages of life. He said, two look like one, two look like the other. And he said, the fifth one, loving your enemies, doesn't really look like anybody right now. And he said, we need to be about all. We need to be category busters in our loyalty to Jesus, that we are more loyal to him and his kingdom agenda than to any political party or personality. We should look like neither of these two, was his point. Our loyalty to Jesus should make us look different. Now, I bring this up because I'm afraid and I'm praying right now that our faith, just as a Christian faith in the United States right now, I wonder if we are more famous for our political loyalties than our zeal for Jesus and his kingdom. And that should not be. Let us be zealous for Jesus and his kingdom, as the early church was, and known for that more than our politics, right? Our, our loyalty should be clear that it's to Jesus first and everything else second. And that will cost us. There's no doubt about it in my mind. People hated the early Christians for these five commitments. They were hated. Truly, we will be hated too. And we have to reckon with that cost. And Jesus is warning us, are you ready for that? Are you prepared for that? So there's a cost to our loyalties that Jesus points out here, he illustrates here. There's also a cost of what I'm calling to our preferences, a cost of preference. And you really see this when, when Jesus says, anyone who does not hate his own life cannot be my disciple. And now for many of Christians around the world, this is a literal cost to despise one's life uh, so much that you would rather die than renounce Jesus, right? That's the idea. The persecuted church all over the world daily has to make this choice, okay? But for most of us right now, this is not a real, that's not the issue for us. For, for us, which is hard as well, is just the day-to-day -day dying to self that Jesus illustrates here. Are you prepared to die to self and follow me? And in so many ways, you guys, it has never been easier to live your life and avoid the cost of discipleship. It is so easy to go church shopping and find a place that agrees with everything you already think about the world and to never be challenged by it, to avoid real community that might make you uncomfortable by numbing ourselves with endless distractions instead of partnering with God in our own personal and spiritual maturity. You have so many options and distractions, it's never been easier to do this. So ask yourself this week, are you ready to let go of your preferences to follow Jesus wherever he may take you? And are there things in your life now where your obedience costs you something? Because it should. Our loyalty and obedience to Jesus should cost us something. Our time should look different. Our comfort should look different. Our resources should look different. If we look like everybody around us, except we go to church or watch church for an hour on Sunday, Okay, we, we haven't taken this call to, to denying oneself seriously enough. And Jesus is warning us, you've got to be able to do that if you're truly going to follow me. 
Now, I buried the lead here a little bit. So Jesus gives us a couple illustrations of what it might cost us to follow him. And I wanted to talk about that. But Jesus actually asks us one more question before we're done. And uh, after he's gone over all the hidden costs and, 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 or all the costs that we might hide in following Jesus, we still must ask this question. Can we afford not to follow Jesus? And you really see this in, in Jesus' second parable. He says, uh, who among you would build without being prepared? And then he says, what king would go to war with another king who has twice the army, twice the power that he does without preparing to surrender if necessary, right? He says, if, if a king goes to war with another and realizes I'm going to lose, he says, offer peace, offer terms of surrender, okay? That's the idea. It's like, if you're going to lose the war, go and surrender to the king before he gets to you. That would be better. And Jesus is hinting here, I think, and many scholars agree, that he's, what he's saying is that even though the cost of surrender may be high, and he talked a little bit about that, the cost of defeat is even higher. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the king and I am coming into your life. I am invading your space, whether you're ready for me or not. And you need to examine yourself because you have two options when I come into your life. You can fight me, and we all know how that'll go, or you can surrender to me. In other words, Jesus is saying, now, you know, if you think disappointing your children or your wife or your husband or your in-laws is bad, try disappointing me. If you think being on the wrong political side is bad, try being on the wrong side of my kingdom. The cost of defeat is higher than the cost of surrender. So here's the thing. Jesus says, you've got to surrender to me. It will be much better for you if you do that. But he, he says here, offer terms of surrender. So what are Jesus' terms of surrender? And I want to I end with this. There's nothing Jesus demands of us, even in our cost of loyalty here, that he does not return to you tenfold. These are his terms of surrender. He says, if you give your life to me and your loyalty to me, your allegiance to me, yes, it will change your family, potentially. But you will get a new family in return, a family of God. This is why Jesus, when he's confronted by his biological family to stop ministering, he says, behold, my mother and my brothers. And it was his followers. This is a new family I've created. Yes, it changes your status in the world. But you are given a new status, sons and daughters of God. Yes, it may cost you your very self. It will cost you your very self. But you are given a new self. You're given an incorruptible life and a new heart. And Jesus, notice with me, he has counted the cost. He has considered you and I worth it all to him. Every sacrifice, every blow to his back, each nail in his hand, even the father turning his face away on the cross, he considered it all and said, yes, you and I, as a part of his family, is worth all of it and more. He counted the cost and said yes. And for Jesus, he says, the war has already begun. I'm coming into the world. I'm building a temple. I'm building a church. Come hell or high water. And yes, the cost is high, Jesus says. But Jesus is all in. He's all in. And the question for us is, are we?